So it's uh, Sunday night, continuing in our study on the Revelation. And we've come in Revelation chapter 2 to verses 12 through 17. And we will be studying the church at, uh, in the Greek taste, it's called the church at Pergamo. Some, some call it Pergamos and some call it Pergamum. We'll call it Pergamo as per the Greek text here. Um, now the first two cities that we studied, the churches in those cities, those cities were, uh, were coastal. Uh, now, Pergamo is, a, is, a, is an interior city. You can look on Bible maps or whatever and see. And so, and so is Thyatira. Um, positioned in valleys, in, in a, an interior city like this positioned in valleys, and that made them, that made them significant with regard to uh, military work, uh, military and sentinel work, and being a military or a political stronghold. Um, capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor, and uh, it was an important city. Parchment was invented in uh, Pergamo, which is a, an important advancement in, uh, in, in education. Uh, it was a place where this, this particular city was a scholarly city. It was a city of academia. Um, the greatest medical school in the world was there, uh, and it was built around the temple of Asclepius, his sign was a pole raised up with a snake coiled around it, the medical sign, serpent. That's in something we're going to hold on to as we study this, that particular symbol. They had a great, uh, scholars would come here to study, uh, princes, people of royal family, they would, and important elite people would send their children to Pergamo to study because of one of the most significant libraries in the world, probably uh, the most prominent library in the world, given the fact that it was such an academic city. And that, uh, that library had over 200,000 books. Now, you know, they were all handwritten and parchment, but, uh, but they, were, they were easier to roll up and to hide and to uh, store. So you could, you could roll them up and then you'd have them in their slots and it would be easy for scholars in that day at least, it would be easy for them easier than ever before to come and study the various subjects, but especially uh, the subject of, uh, of medicine here in this uh, city. Uh, Galen, a famous Greek uh, physician, was born in that city. He wrote a very famous book on medicine. So people came from all over the world to be healed at the temple of Asclepius, the temple of the God of healing. Now, historians write about uh, how the elaborate ritual would engage the person who had come for healing, who at that point would become a worshiper, uh, a worshiper in a, in a pagan temple, uh, would get involved in a very elaborate ritual for, for the purpose of their healing. And 
they would, they would go through this uh, brainwashing as they entered into the temple, and then they would spend time in various parts of the temple, uh, and they would pass through in these ceremonies. They would, they would pass through, for example, they would pass through those areas that involved uh, rhythmic pulsating music that was somewhat hypnotic. Then uh, they would take strong potions and they would uh, they would be uh, they would be uh, introduced into rooms where there was sensual dancing by the temple prostitutes, uh, and then finally they would uh, sniff incense at the end of all of that. And by the time they get through that and they went out the other door, they were healed. Well, they were high as a kite and drunk as they could be, uh, and they believed that all that was their healing. And that's what the that's what the temple of Asclepius did for you. Uh, but the secret of the whole thing was in those potions and in the <coughs> excuse me in the incense that uh, people would sniff. Uh, it was just stuff that dulled the senses mostly. Uh, it's it's really difficult to say that there was any healing to it uh, at all. But it was a world renowned medical school where people came from all over the world to study medicine and also to be healed uh, at the medical school there in in connection with that uh, famous temple. It was also the largest temple to Zeus in the world in that city. Zeus was the chief, he was the chief god. And here in Pergamo, they they had erected for him the largest altar in the world to the chief of the gods, it was all. The city was also the center of what's called a Caesar cult, the worship of Caesar. That Caesar was a god. That's like worshiping government, okay? Uh, and the first temple for imperial worship was erected there at Pergamo, Pergamo. So you can see how tied up in paganism this city was, and uh, so the city was filled with uh, idol worship and paganism. But in verse 12, we're going to open up with verse 12 here. And to the messenger of the church in Pergamo, write, These things says the one having the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Jesus, uh, the Christ of God, is being further unveiled to the church. So here's the next thing that you see about God the Son that is being taught to the church uh, formally here in, in the unveiling or the, or the revealing of, uh, of Jesus uh, to the church. And that is, as it says, he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, the definition of the two-edged sword is clearly given in the scriptures. Um, back over in... Uh, uh, Ephesians six, the you know the outfit of uh, for spiritual warfare. Ephesians six calls the word of God the sharp two-edged sword. It's the word of the Spirit, uh, and it's uh, it's the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and it's two-edged. Hebrews uh, four and verse twelve says that the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides 
It divides in half. It cuts asunder the soul from the spirit uh, and bone from marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So that's the great word of God. It's two-edged. And every time it is swung in whatever direction it's swung in, it has an effect. So it's two-edged. Therefore, it curses and it blesses. It lifts up and it puts down. It gives life. It brings death. It redeems and it judges, whatever you want to say. Uh, This is the two-edged sword of the Word of God, and the one who has it, owns it, possesses it, uses it as he sees fit, is none other than Jesus, who is being introduced here and unveiled to the uh, to the to the people at Pergamum. This is something they need. I told you last time that every time Jesus introduces himself to a church, he takes into consideration the situation that exists at the church and then introduces himself in the way that they need to understand him. So here, they need to understand the importance of the word of God, that it is the personal possession of Christ and that Christ, and that Christ uh, values it, of course, and uses it. It's two-edged, and he would, uh, he, would, he would use it. So his word, which is, is truth, would serve to strengthen this church. Now, verse 13 says, I know where you uh, dwell, where you are settled. Now, that's a, uh, that's a, a Greek word, Unlike eskeno, which is to, to, to abide temporarily, it's like a tent or a tabernacle. Uh, this, is, this is a settled dwelling is what this word is talking about. I know where you are settled or, or established. I know where you are established. Uh, I know uh, where your permanent residence is. That, that's how you would see this word in verse 13. And you are, you are established and you permanently reside where the throne of Satan is. And you hold fast to my name, and you have not denied my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. They're the same word to dwell. Satan has a permanent established residence there where the Christians have a permanent established residence. So Jesus knows where we live and he knows the troubles we face. And in this case, these people faced a strong, a strong adversary because Satan also lived there. Um, it was a spiritually hazardous place for a Christian uh, to live. So he says here to the saints at Pergamo, I know where you are established and you are where Satan's throne is. Probably that gigantic altar to Zeus, the chief of the pagan gods and the awful, terrible, anti-biblical worship uh, that was connected to it drew it drew civilized people, so-called, to worship from around the civilized world. In that day, they came from all over the world. Then there was the world famous medical school. It was 
It was built after a false god and all that they did in their healing and their studies and all was in the name of a, of a false god. It, you know, we, we, we've studied that. Um, and Satan ruled in this city. So this is where Satan's throne is. He, Satan has a throne here uh, in this city. So in ruling this city, he would naturally attack the church. This was not something that Satan would welcome into his place of, uh, of residence. So looking at it and thinking of the, of the scripture here, uh, his attack, taking the context here, would come in two forms. His attack uh, on the church, that is to say, um, would, uh, would, would come, would come in, a, in a couple of ways at least. Number one, persecution from without and corruption from within. And, and this is addressed here uh, in the letter. So, if Smyrna was seen as being persecuted from without, Pergamo would, as much as anything, be seen here as being corrupted from within. Of course, that's very dangerous uh, for a church, in some ways more dangerous than persecution from, from without. Um, historians have written that there were more idols in the city of Pergamo than in any other city in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, the writer, the historian says, you can take all the idols of all the cities in Asia Minor and combine them, and you won't have as many idols as you would find in Pergamo. So Jesus called the place the throne of Satan. That's what he called it. Um, as we said, it was a city of academic learning, uh, Great library, human wisdom. I can tell you this, you didn't find the parchments of Scripture in that library. These were all, uh, these were all parchments that were written by secular humanistic society that was greatly influenced and biased by paganism. So, you know, if, if, uh, if, if they had an accomplishment, that accomplishment was because of some god or, or goddess. Well, those parchments don't exist anymore. Bible's still here, but those things aren't here. That's the difference between the writings of the world and the writings of the and, and the Word of God. Uh, so people would come here for higher learning to get their advanced degrees to make their research in those in that great library. Uh, the rich people and the elitists would send their children to go to school there. They, in their minds, this was the greatest. Uh, this was the greatest learning they could get. The greatest physicians in the world, it was said in that day, were trained in this city at that temple because every kind of disease and sickness known to man would make its way to that temple. And by studying and their research and all, they, they thought they could uh, develop ways to, uh, to treat people. So in the eyes of the world, the best trained doctors in the world came from this pagan temple dedicated to a demon god whose, whose symbol was a serpent. Uh, well, that, that tells you the whole thing is trouble for Christians. But uh, this is how crafty and cunning Satan is because he knows that we all at one time need a doctor at one time or another and we carefully listen to everything the doctor says. Uh, and 
No wonder we're warned about spiritual wickedness in high places. Uh, And we can't forget about that demonic great altar to Zeus there in the city. City filled with spiritual darkness, but there was a church there. And they did receive commendation from Christ. Here's what he said. He said, you hold fast my name. Think of that. You, you hold fast. You, uh, you seize and retain at any and all cost my name. A lot of churches even today won't do that. They'll call themselves a church, but they want at all costs. Seize, retain, and hold on to with strength the name of Jesus. Here's a city where Caesar was worshipped as a god, as a son of the gods, and yet believers held fast to the name of Jesus. Caesar worship was required here in this place. And it required that Christians or whoever would, would, would say that Caesar is Lord. For Christians, they had to renounce the name of Jesus and proclaim Caesar is Lord. Now, if you refused to do that, you would lose your personal property. You'd lose your income. You'd be estranged from your family. You'd be sold into slavery. You could be imprisoned, even killed. That's what it meant to hold fast to the name of Jesus. No wonder here in the scriptures, Jesus brags on them about it. You, in the midst of even Satan's throne, you have held fast to my name. Then he says, you did not deny my faith. Did you know that faith is a gift from God? Faith is not faith in Christ. That's not something that comes from within you. That's something that is a gift that God gives to you. Faith is a gift. And so here, naturally, Uh, Jesus would say, my faith. You did not deny my faith. They worshiped Christ in truth and and in spirit, and they did not deny his faith. They held to his preexistence. They held to his virgin birth his vicarious uh, death, his sinless life, his resurrection bodily, his ascension, his teachings, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They held fast because this is his faith. This is the faith that he gives you. If you have Christian faith, you have a faith that is the faith of the fundamentals of the faith. So that meant that these people stood in defiance of Asclepius. They stood in defiance of Zeus. They stood in in defiance of all these other gods and goddesses. And they did not deny the name, nor did they deny the faith of Christ. And in the course of their existence, because of that, some of their number had suffered. Had suffered martyrdom, as a matter of fact. It says here, even in the days of Antipas, my Martyr. The word for witness is the same word for martyr. My faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas. That's the name he's given. Antipas. Pas is everything. Anti is against. So the, the, the thought that I get is that this great leader of the church, the servant, the faithful servant of Jesus, stood against everything that that city stood for. 
He stood against false gods. He stood against Caesar worship. He preached against worship at the great altar of Zeus, the so-called chief of the gods. He stood against that. He was against all of it. And that's how he preached. It cost him his life. But Jesus knew his name. He knows our names. And he knew the testimony of Antipas. Historians say that he was a pastor teacher there of the church. Uh, and he actually preceded the one to whom the letter is addressed. You know, Jesus starts that, and to the messenger of the church at Pergamo, right? So the guy before him, boy, that'd be hard shoes to fill, wouldn't it, to go in and pastor a church where the guy so effectively preached in a place that it cost him his life. Um, but Antipas, he swung the sword of the word of God both ways. And he was effective. He was effective even unto death. And that's great testimony. Well, Jesus knows where we are. He knows the great influence of Satan that's all around us. And there's not a single detail about us that escapes his eye. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there holding to the teaching of Balaam who would teach Balak to cast a snare before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Well, let's stop at verse 14 first of all. You have some there who or holding on to the teaching of Balaam who deceived and misled and gave the wrong teaching to Balak. Okay, Balaam's way is, is, is it's called Balaam's way, the way of Balaam in 2 Peter 2. It's called the error of Balaam in Jude verse 11. And here it's called a doctrine, the doctrine, the teaching of uh, Balaam. Well, they're all condemned in the Bible. In, uh, in uh, its numbers, uh, uh, chapters 22 through 24, we find the story of Balaam. Uh, his way that is condemned in the Bible was that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. His error was that uh, his interest in God was only such that he wanted to please those who could give him reward that he might receive the accolades of men. And his doctrine then apparently was to put a price on the work of God, sermons, I don't know, just whatever. Uh, when his counsel, when Balaam's counsel was sought by Balak, the Moabite king, who asked him how he was going to stop these, these millions of Israelites from marching through Moab on their way to the promised land, uh, Balaam's suggestion was this. He said, here's what you do. You entice the young Israelite men with beautiful, sensuous, Moabitess women. They're not supposed to marry outside their nation, but you entice them with these 
beautiful, sensual, suggestive women. And then you draw them into mixed marriages and that would weaken the Israelites by introducing uh, the by introducing unbelieving spouses to uh, to Israelite men, and they would raise a generation who would not be as faithful or as loyal to Yahweh as the previous generation. That was the plan. So, what I'm seeing here at Pergamo is that undoubtedly there had been some sort of compromise within the church, and uh, they had. Uh, they had compromised sexual purity. Now it could have been in a, it couldn't have been in a number of ways. When we think of the issue today, for example, of uh, of aberrant sexual behavior such as homosexuality, sexual perversion, uh, there's a great temptation among churches to compromise that and uh, to compromise the value of marriage itself and to overlook if some people live together without being married or, or commit, openly commit adultery out there committing and sleeping around, whatever. Fornication, homosexuality, all these things. You could put any of those into this category where Christ said, I have this against you. You are, you are teaching something like Balaam taught to Balach so that he could confound Israel. And this kind of thing would be introduced to the church of Pergamo, uh, uh, not, not wanting to appear intolerant, you, you see. Pergamo uh, permitted intermarriage with heathen, uh, maybe, uh, maybe overlooked aberrant sexual behavior or misbehavior, things like that, and, and, and uh, unbiblical way of life slowly overlooked and introduced to the church at Pergamo. So that making those concessions to the world weakened the church in a place where the, in the middle of a place where the church needed to be as strong as they could possibly be. And so the next thing you know, they would be participating in a pagan service. And the next thing after that, they would be participating in gross acts of immorality at the temples, uh, surrounding them everywhere. And uh, the time could come where you wouldn't be able to tell the church the difference between the church and the world. It was serving to corrupt the church. However it manifested itself, it was corrupting the church, and Jesus was against it. Now, look at the next uh, verse. He says, So also you have some holding to the teaching. So, so you have also likewise some holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've discussed the Nicolaitans previously. Uh, that was also condemned. This is obviously something that was uh, plaguing the church uh, in those in those days. Uh, we go it, we go to the meaning of the word power of the people or power over the people. Most likely, uh, most likely, it refers to the establishment of a hierarchy within the church, 
which would have made a priesthood similar to the priesthood of pagan temples and a hierarchy of priests so that you'd have a, a high priest and then you'd have lower, lower orders and ranks of, of priesthood uh, beneath that power over the people. That also served to corrupt the church. The church is not built like that, and Christ didn't establish the church that way. So here, then, is the answer because you don't want to go, you don't want Jesus to go to war with you. Remember, he has a, he has a sword. You remember that? He has a sword, it's two-edged, and all he has to do I studied a little in the life of, in, in my martial arts life, there was a time I studied Iado. Iado is the art of the samurai, the art of drawing the sword. And, and a samurai was never to sheathe his sword once it was drawn without having drawn blood. And then the way you would sheathe the sword was to, in a ritualistic way, wipe, wipe the blood and then reinsert the sword. Well, the samurai sword is only single-edged and the art of drawing, the art of drawing the sword was such that even in the art, in the act of drawing the sword, there was a slash. See, it was, it was like an attack. Now here, if you think of the two-edged sword of Christ, he draws that thing. It's, when it comes out, it's already in action. And it has an edge on both sides and something is going to happen. So here's what he says. Repent. This is the answer to the whole thing. Repent, therefore, however, if not, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ's going to go to war against people within that church. I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's the word of God. He'll slash with it. He'll judge with it. He'll curse people from the word. It, it, will, it will place a curse on people. So you don't want Christ to go to war with you. Those who were found guilty of this moral laxity, this social compromise, this uh, ungodly and grievous false doctrine of, of hierarchy of leadership within the church that could command power uh, over the people, Christ says he's against that. He'll attack it. He'll come against it. Now, the la let's see. Verse 17, the one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The overcoming. To him, I will give the manna having been hidden, and I will give to him a white stone, and on the stone a new name having been written which no one has known 
if not the one receiving it. And that's a that's really a beautiful statement here. Um, the overcoming one has special promises of provision here. First of all, hidden manna, manna that has been hidden. Now there, the manna, you know, it's like the manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, for example, uh, to remind people of the faithfulness of God. So we, we have this such reminder. Then a white stone. Now that was a stone of acquittal. Um, uh, someone would be judged and a jury of his peers would have two stones, a black one and a white one. And if he opened his hand and he had a black stone, that meant that the person was guilty. And if he had a white stone, he was innocent. So it was the stone, it was the stone of, a, of acquittal. So it possibly could have referenced how Christ acquits those who have uh, repented, have listened to the Spirit, and have overcome in the situation. Maybe it, maybe it uh, could have also referenced uh, a white stone on, uh, from the Urim and the Thummim on the breastplate of the high priest. Whatever, it spoke favor uh, to the one who had overcome. And then he says, a new name, a new name, a special title given to all overcomers. You have a new name in Christ. Don't know it. And he says, the one doesn't know it, but I'll give it to you. You'll, you'll learn it. You'll have it. You'll find out what it is. So Jesus has not, looked, has over, has not overlooked a single uh, detail in the circumstances of this church, and this church that was a church really struggling with double standards, and he would draw his sword to bring both blessing and judgment. Blessing to the overcomer, judgment to the unrepentant. So this, this now is the next way here that Christ is unveiled to the church uh, with, with, with what he has and the great power that is his, the almighty power uh, that is his. Okay, so that, that, ends us, that closes us out with the third church. So we'll pray and we'll be, we'll be through for tonight. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, before I do, I want to make the announcement um, we have we have researched and uncovered new information that's going to prohibit us from having a drive-in service on Easter. Uh, the Alabama Baptist um, has been in touch with the governor's office, and they did that in behalf of a Southern Baptist church in in Springville. I have read the article, uh, and I have I have read what what uh, the pastor of that church has said as well and what, exactly what they told him. And as it turns out, um, the gathering of, if we, have, if, if we have a gathering of more than 10 people, even though we're in our cars, uh, we could be deemed in violation of, uh, of, of what Governor Ivey has uh, given to us as a decree from Montgomery. It's very complicated. I've read the thing over and over, and... Uh, the general advice is, as painful as it seems, we just have to uh, 
we have to forego the thought of having uh, a drive-up service. It's it's not going to work. We in all likelihood would be in violation of something, and uh, we don't want to put any of our people in a in an uncomfortable setting, and we want to be an example to people as well. So we will not have. Uh, a drive-up service on Easter Sunday, and that pains me greatly. I thought at least we could have that on Easter. But we're still, God's in it, and God's going to bless us, and we're going to be here uh, online, and uh, God is, I think, doing great things. Uh, Pat and I, several times during the day, will watch a Bible study or something from somebody, and this has been the greatest opportunity to get the Word of God out to people who now... (laughs) Can't do anything, can't go anywhere, so they may as well tune into something uh, and just bombard people with the Holy Word of God and trust the Holy Spirit uh, to work in the church, in the world, and and probably what's going to, uh, my nose is itching, I got company coming. Probably what's going to emerge from this is a, is a I hope and pray, a better, stronger, albeit different, Church, maybe for some, uh, but uh, the church of the last time, maybe. Uh, I see so much happening, and so many things are are happening in the world. Uh, I, 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 I've really focused on this thing that Bill Gates wants to do. He's really being active about this. I saw a report where it says he is invested in opening seven factories to develop a, a, um, uh, a vaccine for the corona, uh, the quick on it? Corona. Corona. Corona virus. Um, and um, I, I saw his interview. He's saying what we'll do is we'll put this quantum dot, like a tiny tattoo, as they're vaccinated, and that way we'll know whether or not they could be permitted back into society so that they could buy and sell and carry on with other people. That's the mark of the beast. I have this comfort, however. The Word of God tells us that that thing won't happen and it cannot be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. Well, how long would it take? They haven't developed a vaccine yet. I mean, you know, we're so close. To me, we're so close to the rapture of the church. That's me. That's, I, you may not feel that way. I can't help that. But I study these things, and I see all of these things converging, and this mark of the beast thing is its coming at us from a different perspective than we ever thought. We always thought it would just have to do, well, you know, uh, to settle down the world economy, everybody's going to have to take a mark, and with a mark, Nobody can steal your money. You can't make any illegal trades, and you can't uh, you can't buy and sell illegal drugs. And you, you know, nobody nobody can rob from you know. You don't have the market. But we to, we went to it first of all from an economic perspective. When actually, it may be coming from a healthcare perspective, and the fallout of it is that you can't buy or sell unless you're vaccinated because you'd be unclean in society. Well, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe that's, maybe that's, I don't, I, I, I just know that the world has never been this way before. And man, it is fitting into a, the pieces of a puzzle are coming together with, with, with a dizzying speed like the Lord said he, they would come together. 
So if we're that close, that means that we're, the world could be as close as to three and a half years to the mark of the beast. It happens, I think, in about the middle of the tribulation. Well, okay, that means that the rapture is imminent. Well, it's always imminent, but I mean, it's at hand. You know, you never know. But I'm praying that it is, and I'm trying to live like it is, and, and I don't mind telling people that Jesus is coming again. He's coming soon, I think, and it may even be at the door because of this whole worldwide thing that has suddenly come upon the world that could, uh, that could bring us right to the brink what could bring the earth dwellers. The church won't be here. The church won't have a part of that. And thank God we won't be subjected to that. But if it's that close, if it's that close, think about it. You may not, you may not get out of bed in the morning. You may, you may have a whole new robe on in the presence of the Lord. Man, I hope it's that way. Well, let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the, even this time that you've placed us in, that we can reflect and think and meditate, read your word and, and pray. And Father, we know that you're using it for the, for the purging and the development and refinement of your church and your saints. And it's all according to your purpose, and we thank you for that. And Father, we pray for our leaders, and we pray for all who are all who have authority, that you would bless them as you see fit. God, direct them and give them wisdom as you've mandated us to pray for them. And Lord, we just, we just, we just cry for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that it would be very soon. Prepare our hearts and help us. Teach us to proclaim the good news as long and as far as we can until until the times of the Gentiles have come to an end. Give us your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you for, for being here with me tonight.